grow old along with me. The best is yet to be, the last of life, for which the first was made. Today we talk about the difficulties faced by those who immigrate, the plight of marginalized peoples, and by what measure a society values people's lives through the lens of Asimov's galactic empire adventure, Pebble in the Sky. This is Galaxy, a podcast about the sci-fi literary universe of Isaac Asimov. Welcome to Galaxy. My name is Jason Stark. I'm Stephanie Yunker. And I'm Jacob Yunker. The three of us are going through Isaac Asimov's sci-fi novels one at a time, uh, roughly in the order that they were written. And we are now progressing. We have we have one down, don't we? Yes, just just the one. Yeah, but you know we got to start somewhere. And now we are yeah. progressing into new territory, extremely new territory, aren't we? Yeah, I was not ready for this. Uh, you told me I w- not to have too many expectations going in, and I still had too many expectations going in. Did you expect <laughs> robots? I did. I'm sorry about that. There was some interesting future technology interpretations that was fun, though. I like the names of them all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So so enough of this. We're covering Pebble in the Sky. And this is the first Asimov novel from what's called the Galactic Empire Trilogy. And it was written in 1950. Uh, And full disclosure, I said we cover these in roughly the order that these books were published. Pebble in the Sky was actually published several months before iRobot. We chose to do iRobot first because it's a little bit more recognizable. And and this one is a little less known, but but we're here now. And it's not as though there's this huge uh, need to read them in this particular, you know, in the particular order of Pebble in the Sky first, then iRobot. They're not incredibly connected at this point and so you know it's it's kind of it's kind of a wash which one you read first so here we go before we get into it just another reminder of some of the literary and historical context around this book um we are entering into the nuclear age uh we have the post-war uh post atomic bomb kind of cultural awareness and I'm trying to remember when it was that the Soviet Union um, achieved atomic weaponry power. Do you guys remember when that was? I, I can't say that I do right off know. the top of my head, but I do have a Googling device near me. Well, I think it was somewhere within, the, within a few years of the war ending. And so, you know, there was at least if the Soviet Union didn't have the atomic bomb yet, there was the likelihood that they would develop it at some point. And so we have kind of this specter of nuclear, um, nuclear warfare and what it might lead to. And so that kind of serves as some of the surrounding context that gives the shape to the, to the story. Uh, well, the Soviets achieved nuclear power in 1949. That was okay. when they exploded their first atomic bomb. Got it. So if this was published in 1950... It was right after that, so right. So, did you enjoy the book? I I had I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, the whole time, I was just like eating popcorn. You know, I wasn't. I was listening to it on audiobook, Audible again. Plug. Um, I definitely was. I was very interested in in what was happening next and and where they were going and what kind of um, like what kind of world am I in? The whole time, I was trying to feel like I'm getting my bearings. Good. I was interested enough to keep reading because I wanted to keep putting pieces together and kind of find out what was happening, but I'm not a huge mystery fan, so any sort of like foreshadowing or um, hinting that there is some sort of big mystery going on, I'm like, eh, I don't, I don't really care. Just tell me what's going on. So <laughs> for me, the novel was kind of monotone. Mm, okay. Um, all right. And I, you know, I had trouble figuring out who the hero was, and you know, I didn't feel like it escalated in tension 
really. But I really, really like Asimov's world building, which is what I really enjoyed about iRobot. So that was still there, and I enjoyed that. Well, great. And when we talk about world building, we're not just even talking about the world building of this particular novel, but we're looking at all of these novels as they form like kind of a giant narrative world building construct. And so this is, in my opinion, one of the really interesting ones when it comes to that on both the individual novel level and in terms of the whole arc. I really enjoy this book. It's my favorite one of the Galactic Empire trilogy. And I don't know how many um, people would say that. Um, There might be others who enjoy one of the other two better. But uh, this one is certainly the one that I think is the strongest. And so we are going to get into a synopsis of it. For uh, If it's been a while since you've read this book, I mean, like we said, books like iRobot are way better known. And it may be, have been several years since you've read Pebble in the Sky. So we offer this brief synopsis of uh, the first roughly half of the book. This is a two-episode suite, I should say, before we get into it. So um, this is part one synopsis of Pebble in the Sky. It's 1949. Joseph Schwartz, a retired tailor, walks down a suburban Chicago street. He's lived a good life and he's content, happily passing into his old age. Unbeknownst to Schwartz, however, an experiment at a nuclear research institute on the other side of town turns mysteriously hazardous and emits a powerful beam of radiation directly at him. In an instant, Schwartz is transported to a place and a time completely unknown to him. Disoriented, terrified, afraid that he is insane, Schwartz hurries along an empty road, surrounded by wilderness, with a faint blue glow shimmering on the horizon until he spots a house. The house is home to Arben and Loa Marin, and Loa's aging father, Gru, who was wheelchair-bound, and who Arben and Loa have been illegally hiding now for two years. Up to that moment, Gru has been talking about an upcoming archaeological expedition that is coming to Earth, led by Bell Arverton of the Sirius Sector. At that moment, Schwartz bangs on the door and is cautiously greeted by the young couple, who we now learn speak a language completely foreign to Schwartz. He collapses and is brought in. Arben and Loa debate what to do with this old stranger. They deduce that he must be an off-worlder. He may be able to work on their farm and help meet the food quota. Gru suggests that he be taken to the nearby city of Shika, where a scientist is working on a synapsifier, a machine that can speed up the brain's learning capacity. Meanwhile, Bell Arverton, the archaeologist, has arrived at Procurator Ennius's estate atop the Himalayas to avoid Earth's radioactive regions. Arvidan is working on an unpopular theory that life originated on one planet in the galaxy and slowly spread out over time. Arvidan has come to Earth hoping to confirm this theory. Ennius warns him that he may have difficulty with the people of Earth who staunchly defend their traditions and are resistant to the ideas of outsiders to the point of riot. In passing, Ennius also mentions a Dr. Schecht in the city of Shika, and Arvidan recognizes the name as the man who has developed the synapsifier. Arben Marin, from the farm, brings Schwartz to Shika, and after some coy reasoning, convinces Dr. Schecht to accept Schwartz for the synapsifier. The procedure takes a few hours, and Arben is told to come back for him in a few days. Schwartz awakens from the procedure, and over the course of several days, quickly begins picking up words, phrases, even math, but at the first available opportunity, he also slips out from the Institute and escapes. He walks to a diner, clumsily gets help in obtaining a meal. Also in the diner, and observing this, is Bell Arverton, who has just arrived in Shika after a very awkward flight, where he learns about the 60, Earth's custom of enforced euthanasia to keep society sustainable. Schwartz leaves, but the men who help him eat suspect that he has radiation fever, and they alert an informant from the Society of Ancients. Arverton encounters Dr. Schecht's daughter and assistant, Pola, who is frantically searching for Schwartz, and Arverton offers his help. They locate Schwartz in a department store, and 
and he is coaxed into returning to the Institute, just as the store locks down due to a radiation fever patient being on the loose. That same informant from the ancients, after insisting on a bribe, takes Schwartz back to Schecht. Pola and Bell are confronted by Imperial soldiers who mistreat Pola. Arvidin assaults an officer and takes a hit from him with a neuronic whip. When he comes to in custody, it is revealed that he is actually from Sirius rather than Earth and forces the colonel to formally apologize to Pola. The two part ways with some hostility, Pola with uncertainty over this off-worlder and Arvidin in frustration over Pola's chilled attitude. In the midst of all this, the Society of the Ancients has been watching. On Arvidin's flight, in Shika, even within Shek's institute, the High Minister and his secretary, Balkis, who is the true figure in power, have already coerced Shek into the use of the synapsifier for their own purposes. And now, the unauthorized treatment of Schwartz, seemingly an off-worlder, and coincidence of Bell Arvidin's involvement in the affair, has the Brotherhood highly suspicious. Okay, so let's talk about where we are, because, Jacob, you talked a lot about this question of, like, where are we, right? Yeah, I definitely felt, um, when I first started the book, um, I'm not used to place changing so much so quickly. Mm -hmm. Like, in the first, like, three chapters we have, we start with Schwartz, pause on Schwartz, take a whole chapter in a nearby lab, pause on that lab, return to Schwartz on a different plane of being not even sure if it's the same earth he got zapped into the future right yeah we went from we went from this scenario in irobot when there's only one planet or at best like a few colonized worlds by the end of it because of hyperspace travel and now we have shot forward into the future into a time where there's an entire galactic empire that has formed (laughs) Okay, every time you say Galactic Empire, I just, the scene from Star Wars where Palpatine is talking about the Galactic Empire, that plays through my head. Well, I guess that goes to show, um, (laughs) I guess, you know, you got to give props to the people who do these things first. And in this case, that would be um, Mr. Asimov, if not someone before him, but he was one of the first uh, to kind of bring that whole concept out into a literary construct. So, um, but yeah, we, we have a big, huge empire that spans the galaxy and we also have no robots. So not one, what on earth's going there, going on there. We do have a slight reference to robots at one point in the book. Do y'all remember where that is? Not at all. Okay. So when I think it's when Arverdon is talking to Ennius, uh, at Everest and, um, it's either, in conversation or in narration or something like that. I think it has to do with some of Arverdon's findings on another world at one point as an archaeologist. He finds that there was a, a civilization on that planet that had robots. But what happened was that eventually the robots uh, became so integral to the living of the lives of these people that they lost, they really kind of lost their initiative and mm. and lost their kind of vigor and it became really easy for uh, for conquering outsiders to come in and just wipe them out i do remember them talking about that planet i didn't remember that it was robots that had caused the sort of downfall of this people group yeah the the conversation tends to sway towards character flaws instead of practical like oh here's the means by which they fell it was like oh their arrogance and their flippancy what killed them. Which is interesting because that's what we talked about in the last chapter of iRobot is that sort of like you like the tamed fire sort of analogy that Asimov uses. Exactly. Yeah. I think that that if we look at Pebble in the Sky as kind of being the first shot out of the gate novel wise, well, then again, you know, those stories uh, from iRobot were written over several years from 1940 to about 1950. And so it's kind of hard to tell which direction the influence is going from the writing of Pebble in the Sky 
to short stories in iRobot. I didn't look closely enough at the time, at the dates for all of those stories. But we see that kind of similar theme that, that robots seem to be, on the whole, they kind of drive humanity downward in a certain way. Yeah, I think in iRobot, it was kind of, um, it, it was, there was like a question of what will this do to us? Will it make us just domestic human beings or whatever the problem is there? And then it seems like in Pebble in the Sky, he's decided that it's a problem, that it will move humanity into just being conquerable. So let's talk about Schwartz. Uh, you were talking, Stephanie, about how it was kind of hard for you to identify who the hero of the story really was. Um, I always kind of figured it was Schwartz, um, but it is true that for a while we do have a whole lot of attention that's being placed on Bell Arverdon and his role in the story. But I think so much of the story focuses on Schwartz's experience and growth that I have to look at him as as he's our guy, you know? But he doesn't really do anything. I mean, he gets zapped into the future. He gets zapped by the synapsifier. He kind of hangs out for a while. And then he makes a big decision at the end that I'm not going to spoil in this episode. Right. And that's kind of all he does. I mean, it's not a super, it's not super clear I guess I need help with, like, what is the definition of a hero? Yeah, I was just going to go into the the fact that, okay, if you want to call him a protagonist, that is one thing that it, it's hard to see how he's the protagonist specifically until the end of the book. A protagonist being the one who actually drives the action of the story forward versus the antagonist who tries to hinder that action. Um so in a certain sense, he's not an incredibly strong protagonist. He is the one who's kind of being acted upon throughout the story. But I still, I guess when I say hero, I mean more like from whose perspective is this story being being given? You know, whose perspective are yeah. we looking at? And And that's why I kind of lean toward him. Yeah, that totally makes sense because the story kind of swirls around him and we as the reader are in the same position as Schwartz where we've been zapped into the future and we don't quite know what's going on and we're getting this information as we go. I think that I think that's a strong argument that we're supposed to step into that but I also think as far as who we're supposed who we're called who we are called to like say we're in the shoes of I think we spend a lot more time in Bell Arvidan's head and thoughts and growth than anyone else's. Yeah, he and I think well, he doesn't grow that much. But I mean, his take on the world is the one that's given more forthright than anyone else's. And I think that through all the themes that we're going to talk about in these two episodes, that the things that Bell deals with and the and story elements that he is kind of wrapped up in the most, well, they might have to wait until a little bit later. But yeah, I feel like th those definitely are the two most dynamic characters that we have because we learn so much more about their inner feelings and developments and monologue. And it's not like, it's not like um, Secretary Balkis where he's, he's incredibly one-dimensional He's a very flat character and doesn't have a lot of variation. He's just kind of a villain. Like I kind of imagine him having, he ought to have a curly mustache or something that he <laughs> twirls, you know, very, very cardboard, um, but he serves his purpose. It's really Schwartz and, and, um, and Arverden who, who fill those two roles. But I want to talk about Schwartz because the first thing that I want to talk about is we, we just did recently an Asimov bio episode. And what do we know about Asimov and where he's come from? He is an immigrant who, who came to America from Europe, um, always thought that he was a pretty smart guy and had a pretty trick memory and read everything that he could and managed to keep hold of all of it. I'm like, I feel like when we look at Schwartz, we're kind of looking at maybe, um, maybe a, a vision of an old Asimov several years away from when he actually wrote this book or something. Like, I feel like his experiences in his own life 
probably very much impact his presentation of Schwartz. Do you think that that's accurate? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, with a lot of the relating to the marginalized and to um, people who are constantly thought down upon, he definitely lumped, Asimov fits that category, right? Being Jewish. Um, and Schwartz definitely fits that category being someone who doesn't fit in a whole new world. And Earthmen fit that category because they're already considered the lowliest of the whole galactic empire. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's interesting. There, We've got a whole theme of outsiders going on. Like, So Schwartz is an outsider and Bell is an outsider. And even Pola and Schacht in their world is are outsiders because, you know, they're outsiders of the empire. And the first outsider thing that I want to talk about really is is what I would just call like the plight of the immigrant or of the displaced person or maybe even perhaps of the refugee because when we look at Schwartz we see a person who is quite I mean when you say forcefully it's done by like a a radioactive MacGuffin of some kind we don't get a great explanation and it's another it's another one of those moments where we have a science fictiony sort of thing happen from Asimov that Eh, we don't really need to explain it very well. Um, but there it is. And he, and he shot forward kind of forcibly into the future. And um, to me, like what he encounters is that he has, um, he has a completely new world that he has no experience in. It kind of reminds me of what happens when calamity strikes and someone has to quickly relocate and and have another world essentially that they step into and they have no frame of reference for it uh and his experience as an immigrant having to come to the united states which it was in in the story it's depicted as a as a painful experience for him i feel like we're seeing kind of we're we're examining that a little bit through the lens of a science fictiony sort of happening you know what i mean yeah, I agree with that interpretation a lot. And there's lots of little places where it's one thing to feel like, like Schwartz is definitely the immigrant where it's like, I am I am here. I can't understand anybody or anything. I'm just taking in what I can. I'm getting impressions of things. You've got a weird culture that I'm not really sure I go along with in all ways. Yeah, like he, well, especially like with when he escapes the Institute and he's trying to go get food, like the dude just needs food. We all need food, and he doesn't even know how to ask. Um, it's it's just a very kind taxi cab driver who takes care of him. And then reports him to the authorities. Well, someone else kind of put the thought of radiation fever in his head, and then he tried not to die. Yeah. Yeah. It's just this suspicion. I think we could talk about suspicion of outsiders there and saying, you know, this person isn't understanding what's going on. They must be sick. Or they must be a danger. And, you know, we see a lot of that in our modern world today is, you know, we meet people who are different from us and assume that they must be a danger to our group. Yeah, I think the biggest plight of, of, of immigrants would be the people they're migrating to either accepted them halfway or didn't accept them at all. Um, so there, there'd be, so there's people who migrate over um, I'm I'm thinking specifically of people from Mexico who who feel like they've got no other choice to escape cartels and and poverty and foodlessness and so foodlessness, famine. It's not a word. <laughs> Food insecurity, I believe. Food insecurity. The... So they feel like they have no other choice except to immigrant, migrate illegally, right? And that's a scary situation. But because even when they even if they are successful, they're not wanted. Right, so there's a lot of antagonistic feelings to them just to, just for survival's sake, and demonization, and yeah. demonization, and then there are the ones who do like migrate, and I'm not just talking about Mexicans at this point. I'm talking about um, the whole world. Anyone who migrates successfully, once you show up, I mean, their government said yes, but the people didn't say anything about it. And now you're there, so there's halfway acceptance and partial acceptance that sometimes is just as bad. Um, and that's tough. That's really, really tough. And I, and I think we're Schwartz is supposed to make us feel that. And in the society of Shika, there is a lot of fear just in the atmosphere. You can see it in 
the farmers and they have a third person there that can't work and they're afraid of losing him and the 60 just casts this pall over the environment and it's a culture that has a lot of fear built in so to have something new is very scary because they're not sure if this new thing is going to continue to abuse them yeah and also one other thing when it comes to schwartz i think that um this is something that i uh picked up from uh, williamjames.edu, uh, some little tidbits from some APA resolutions on immigrant children, youth, and families from the last several years. And, um, and it reads, stresses involved in immigration and resettlement experiences can cause or exacerbate mental health difficulties, including anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, somatic complaints, sleep problems, behavioral problems in children, substance abuse, suicidal ideation, and severe mental illness. I think this is another instance where we look at Schwartz and we see everything that he goes through, and whether or not Asimov meant this or not, I feel like it hits on so many of those cylinders. We watch him kind of just appear in this place, and obviously it's exaggerated because of the because of the sci-fi circumstances. But we watch him just kind of pop into this place and have no sense of orientation or stability. And he has nothing to go on. Um, there, there's the language barrier and the culture shock. And um, there are several points throughout the book, and at least in the first half, one time, where we have this thought where Schwartz doesn't even really care if he goes on living. There's the point where he wakes up from the procedure and he remembers that they gave him some pills uh, to, to make him go to sleep. And when he, when he took them, he just thought to himself, man, I don't have any idea what these are. They could be poison and I would just be fine with it. Like that is how uprooted he feels and how out of place he feels. And that, that those very same things can be, can be, what happen in the minds of people who immigrate just from one country to another. Um, and so I think that that speaks a lot in this book. Um, we also have the fact that in that state, he's also really highly manipulable too. the fact that Arben Marin from the farm just takes him to this place and volunteers him for something that he has no idea what it is. Like, I think that also, uh, gets also to the to the notion that people who immigrate from one place to another and they have all these barriers and challenges they can also be pretty manipulable and and can be abused in their lack of experience and lack of foundation i think that's a wonderful observation sad observation yeah absolutely i think another um if if it's okay if i move forward with another theme yeah um I think another thing we see a lot is as is the fear one. Um and I want to call it like a conspiracy theory theme. If that's <laughs> I, I there's but probably in a, a world where the conspiracy theories come true. Well, not all of them. I mean, we have um we have the conspiracy theory between the prime minister and ah oh man, that guy's name that starts with a B. Balkus. Balkus. Thank you. I was supposed to say Balkan. I was like that's not right. So we have the conspiracy theory start with Balkis um, and the Prime Minister about what Bell and Schwartz and Schecht, what they're all doing, and that's totally wrong. But we as a reader know that, but right. he has no idea himself. But every character in the story has some level of conspiracy theory, some that are true, some that are false, but everyone's got one. And it's, and it's interesting to see how fear both isolates everyone from each other, but also turns everyone into dangerous for each other. And I think that that really has a lot to do with um, the impact of a very secretive and powerful leadership that, that casts itself over society, that it becomes an air of suspicion all the time. Like you don't, you never know whether your words are going to betray yourself over to someone who is listening. Like you never know who you can trust 
And and like you said, there's always conspiracy and the assumption of plans within plans within plans. And the interesting thing is that Balkis is used to this sort of thing, and he's used to people scheming and conniving and trying to come up with with plans like this, and it's how its own his own mind is operating. And so it's what he jumps to as well. The thing is, is that the the interesting twist of the story is the reason that he constructs this whole idea of what's going on is because something has entered into the environment that he can't account for. Like he can't can't account for someone coming from the past and jumping into that moment (laughs) in time. And it's like, and who would, you know, who would ever consider that that might've been what had happened. And so he has to come up with this way of constructing the logic of the circumstances. And it just happens to be that's, that it's incredibly wrong. Yeah. Instead of, instead of taking time to go learn more, he just assumes that every logical step he takes is the only possible logical way to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And even when you could put forward an aspect of the situation that seems to counteract what you, what you're thinking, like it might seem to contradict it. Then you say, well, oh, well, that's just what you would expect from such and such person because they don't want to be found out. You know, again, a very conspiracy theory type mindset where any piece of data becomes used to confirm your theory. Yeah. The lack of falsifiability. Um, and it does a lot of damage. And I think the, the conspiracy theory theme ties well to the immigrants theme where everyone's isolated from one another and because they're isolated, they're scared. And because they're scared, they have conspiracy theories, which isolate them from each other, which make them scared, which create theories, which... It's a nasty anxiety cycle. Yeah, everybody's an outsider in that situation. The whole book is full of outsiders. That's really sad. But I think I see like an overarching theme that operates on several different levels in the book. And that's that theme would be just secrets in general. And there are there are secrets that operate on everything from the intentional to the unintentional and uncontrollable. I mean, on the one hand, Schwartz um, has secrets that are kept from him just involuntarily because of all of the barriers that he faces. Like this is a mystery that is unfolding for him all throughout the course of the book where there's so much that's, that is unaccessible to him. And so like, even on that level, we have just, a lack of information for him to to understand the truth. Um, some secrets are kept out of fear of people's lives being in danger. When we think of Gru, who is being kept by um, Arben and Loa, but the fact that they're hiding him because they know that when the next census comes, that the 60s is going to get him. And so they're, they're doing whatever they can to, to make sure that nobody knows that they're, that they're keeping him. But we also have like secrets that are kept because uh, they're power structures that need to be maintained. Like the society for the ancients, like we've talked about highly secretive, highly, um, highly covert in everything that they do. And then we not only have the plight of immigrant or the displaced person, I feel like we also have the plight of the marginalized too, because then we're jumping from Schwartz over to Dr. Schecht and Pola and really everybody on Earth. I, I need to ask you, how many references and little allusions did you recognize throughout the course of this book to things that were like biblical or um, ancient Near Eastern history, things like that? Because Frankly, they're all over the place. The bells are going off everywhere for this. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Um, Actually, this ties into my first worldview question, so it'll be a good transition. But uh, it's very Jewish. Very Jewish. Yeah. Earth has like these really long and rich and fiercely held traditions. It's presented as something very close to a religion, but not quite. They believe that Earth is the oldest and truest society, and that histor- and there are historical revolts 
that have come along due to imperial desecration of sacred spaces. So, I mean, if you're not familiar with the history of, say, like the Hellenistic or the Roman eras as, as pertains to ancient Israel and ancient Judea, we have when um, it was Herod Archelaus who tried to put a golden eagle, uh, like a Roman eagle, at the entrance to the temple, and there was a huge riot over it, and, and it didn't happen again. Uh, probably about 100 years or so prior to that, uh, there was Antiochus uh, Epiphanes who tried to profane. He he tried to. I think he tried to slaughter like a pig or something in the temple. Yeah, and it sparked off a huge revolt um, in the region. And so obviously we have very close allusions to this with Earth people who you know when they won't allow the galactic um, the galactic symbol to be displayed in the council chambers of the society, like those kinds of things. It's all very familiar, and it, it really calls upon a lot of that. I actually didn't know that history and still got the impression somehow. There's something about the, the first conversation with Ennius and Bell Arvidin that starts like sending out signals, and I was on the lookout for stuff, uh, stuff like that, but I, I didn't even know the history, and I was still like, this sounds Jewish to me. Yeah, and there are going to be more too, more references throughout the book that some of which we'll kind of cover in um, in part two. All right, so we're going to take a short break and we will be right back with more of our thoughts on Pebble in the Sky. Calling all Star Wars fans to a galaxy far, far away. Star Wars Escape Pod is a Star Wars-based podcast for any fans out there looking to enrich their experience and keep on top of all the latest news and discussion in the Star Wars community. So, if you haven't already checked out Star Wars Escape Pod, then uh, search us up on whatever platform you're using. We're available on any platform across the galaxy. We got a great after show called Clone Wars Talk, which will take you chronologically through the entire course of Star Wars The Clone Wars, which is a great animated show bridging the gap between episodes two and three. With plenty more content coming at you at light speed, this is a Star Wars podcast for any Star Wars fan across the galaxy. Speaking of which, enjoy the rest of today's galaxy episode, and may the Force be with you. Did you guys look up the poem that Schwartz is quoting? Did you look it up and read it? I'm a bad, bad person. Bad no, student. I recall it now from from the book. Like I could, I could tell it to you. I've read this book enough times in prep for this episode that I could read those few lines. But no, I have not read the entirety of the poem. Okay, so the poem is actually by Rabbi Ben Ezra, right? Who is obviously Jewish, and it's called The Best is Yet to Be. Mm-hmm. That's what I have written down that it's called. Anyway, all right. Um, but it's it's a really fascinating poem because it is so richly Jewish. It does have this great heritage. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with the Jewish religion, there is there is a lot of hope and a lot of acknowledgement that things can get really bad right now. So, you know, it's got this stream of like, things, things are pretty bad. But there's also this like shining hope that there will be a day that everything will be better. And we refer to that theology as uh, the theology of new creation. So this is the idea that, you know, God created the world and that then sin and the fall happened and bad things start to happen and God is recreating. So there will be a new creation. So that's where the poem points. And it's actually this really fascinating way to couch a novel. You know, if you think about it, bad things are still happening in the future. Schwartz gets pushed forward and he's like, you know, maybe this is the best that is to come. And really things haven't gotten that much better. There's still a lot of death and destruction. So it's this interesting framing of like the best is still yet to come. So there's this like ringing of hope that I just really appreciate. Yeah. And while um, it does have this hopeful air to it, I think that 
for me, as I hear those words of the poem, which are echoed several times throughout the book, um, the thing that continually rings in my mind as I've read the book is the, the idea, you know, grow old along with me, the best is yet to be. Uh, and yet he has arrived in a world where nobody gets to grow old. And, and on the individual level and on the societal level, the, you know, the last of life is that, that third line of the poem is the last of life for which the first was made. And this idea that old age is to be, I assumed that it was about saying that old age is to be seen as a joyful reward, essentially, you know? Yeah. The, and, and he comes into a world where that is completely flipped upside down because of these societal needs to sustain the population and make sure that everybody can actually eat. They've arrived, you know, there are these hard choices that they have decided to make as a civilization that are now ingrained. Perceived societal needs. I just want to throw that out there. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And there is this really, but there, I want to consider there's this really cute older couple on the flight with Belle. And the husband is going to reach his 60 and the wife is just a couple months younger and they have decided they're going to go together into the 60, which I, I think that grow old along with me, they have grown old in the sense that their society grows old, not that it's actually old. This couple is the picture of grow old along with me for that society. And it's not as attractive as, you know, a longer life. But still, they embody that grow along with me. The best is yet to come line. The best is yet to be. Best is yet to be. I'm sorry. And you know, I don't know. I, I know you that at the heart of it, Jacob, when you said that it's a perceived need, I get what you're saying. Um, and I suppose we could get into, I'm not really going to get into whether we have to argue about whether the 60 is good or bad. I think the 60 is a bad thing. Um, but at the same time, when the earth's popul when the earth's crust is so highly radioactive and so much of the land is uninhabitable, um, you are going to run into some concrete realities, uh, pretty soon. The population is so small because there's no other way for them to live except for encroaching out into those territories that are just going to kill them anyway. You arrive at this point where you say, what choices are going to have to be made so that people are not suffering unduly? I, I still think that you're right when we're talking about perceived needs, but it, it happens that there are going to be these very difficult but inevitable aspects of their situation where it's not like they can move off world. It's not like they can adapt in any other way. So what are they going to do? I want to say that that's just scarcity reasoning. It is scarcity reasoning. Yeah, because, uh, you know, there's prejudice in the galaxy and they won't let them move off world, but they should move off world. Like that would be the solution is to expand further as your, as your population expands or, um, oh, I, I have a solution, but I can't tell you what it is because I don't want to yeah. spoil the ending of the novel. Yeah, and it comes back to that to the racism bit of like, they should, they should just move off world. They should have space. They should, but have they help. have this racism saying, Oh no, they're, they're either going to beat us up, eat us or kill us with their radioactive. They've skin. got an issue with the empire. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. needs to be handled. And also, you know, obviously this is kind of where we run into some of the, I guess the breaking of the analogy, you know, this is, this, I think this book is highly, analogical to situations in our real world as we've been talking about and you could argue like are you sure there's nowhere you could go like it's a pretty big galaxy you might be able to find somewhere right and yeah and and, and the science of food production and yeah you know so I mean, obviously they, I mean, we don't actually see any famine anywhere we just see like vending machines makes yeah. you kind of wonder if people yeah. are actually starving or not so just another little flavor that of um, Jewish history that I wanted to bring up is even this language of procurator 
like that is Roman language. Yeah. Um, you know, the empire is, is Roman language and the citizens of the empire being, you know, more highly prized than the natives of earth. That is, is Roman thought is if you're a Roman citizen, that's a good thing. That's going to get you a lot of, a lot of good things. Yeah. Not only is there like a, a strong Judaistic sort of reference here. And, uh, there's also a very highly like Roman empire type sort of vibe that's going on and that's surely intentional and um not only like judaism but i i almost feel like bell's challenging of the colonel in the garrison with his being a citizen and demanding the apology that's also actually quite new testament there's something like that that yeah. happens in in the book of acts uh where the apostle paul demands an apology uh because they were persecuted but he's a citizen and all this is very i i wouldn't be surprised if he took it right from there as far as that that aspect of the story yeah so i'll be interested to see if this whole theme of like a roman type empire continues in the next couple novels all right so my second worldview question discussion that i want to have is this question of who deserves to live and I think this is a really potent um, Holocaust, World War II kind of question. So it's really potent uh, in the time period when Asimov is writing, as well as, you know, in this novel with the 60, who, who gets to live? Who gets to take up space? Who gets to have resources? And, you know, what is the value of life? Because with the 60, you get this argument that the value of your life is to work, and if you don't have potential to work, if your potential to work is not increasing, you're, you're you have no extra. Value. You don't have value for the society. And, and I want to say that seeing people over 60 as uh, expendable is very Western because we have this thing about young people having potential, but you know, in some Eastern cultures, they honor age a lot more than we do because they have earned, because they've, they've earned wisdom. Yeah, they've been through it. And that wisdom, that heritage, that tradition has value. Um, where in a Western society, wisdom, heritage, tradition don't always have value. We're pursuing technology. We're pursuing advancement. Yeah, it almost makes, it, it almost seems like Schwartz can represent in his coming into this environment and so much of what he thinks and his and his struggling with is presented there for the reader it's almost like you know his his just arriving on the scene um it it poses its own kind of challenge to the attitude of the 60 as it's being as it's being laid out in the book maybe yeah just this outsider coming in he is a challenge to this perceived the, the, the perceived necessity of the tradition because he's still useful and he's past 60 when no one has been allowed to get past 60. So in ancient Roman times and Hellenistic times, good, good death is what I actually re remember reading that I think on the, on the plane ride scene. Yeah, I think good it's dying like, and good death was actually a doctor was a doctor's role in the Western individualistic yeah. thought like you brought up it's, and we in the, as Americans have definitely adopted a lot of Roman thinking. Well, the founding fathers very much admired Roman. That's a completely different discussion, but it's very interesting comparisons between the founding fathers and um, Roman society, not in the empire stage, but in the, in the Republic stage. I've read some interesting works connecting Darwinistic thinking with societal Darwinistic thinking with the Holocaust. And obviously, 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 that is not Darwin's goal. I, Darwin wanted to be a good scientist, but that gets twisted and twisted and twisted and people use things for their own power. And that's how you end up with this idea of for the greater good of society, we're going to cull the herd. Mm -hmm. or or so to speak um 
which is actually just my grab at power to Culva herd, which actually, I, oh, no, that's later in the book, but Schwartz makes a comment about it. Yeah, it's putting, putting value on life in a different way than putting value on individual lives. Put, putting value on life in a way that sets you up for power. All right, the rest of my worldview questions I want to save for part two. That means you have to wait. It's not fun, is it, audience? We're getting to a point where we need to um, to cut it off this time, and we're going to have one more episode after this that covers the rest of the book, uh, both in its plot and the important questions that it asks. So um, if you want to get in touch with us, there are several ways you can do that. The easiest one is if you want to send us an email, and you could do that at contact at galaxypodcast.com. And what are some other ways you can get in touch with us? You can get in touch with us on our Facebook at Galaxy Podcast on Facebook. And we have a website, galaxypodcast.com. That's right. You can go there. You can hear all of our episodes. You can learn a little bit about us. And uh, also, you can find links to subscribe there. Uh, on any podcasting service that you could look for basically so head there go ahead and check us out and we hope you've enjoyed this episode today Um, we hope you take the opportunity to subscribe so you don't miss an episode we're thankful that you've joined us and we will see you next time i'm jason stark i'm stephanie yunker and i'm jacob yunker and this has been galaxy Are you itching for a good story? Laughter among friends, maybe even a mystery or two? Well, you're in luck! Fire Breathing Kittens is a standalone Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Each episode is a separate three-hour-long story, like a movie for your ears, so you can listen to these adventures in any order you like. So, join us on a real play D&D quest as we solve mysteries, attempt comedic banter, and enjoy friendship. Fire Breathing Kittens podcast, fantasy action, mystery, friendship.